There is nothing like the sound of racking a shotgun. Everybody knows what it sounds like, and everybody knows you're not going to miss. She's sitting there. She's in an emotional coma. Prints are not burned into the metal of the car. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to best case, worst case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today in the studio is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Haig, state and federal prosecutor, at least I was at one point. I feel like I still am at heart, though, Jim. Yeah, well, I Especially when I'm with you. Certainly in action. (laughs) So true. And with us today, we have somebody we know very well. I've known for his entire life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Tim Clemente, Jim's younger brother. I'm a former police officer and a former FBI agent and a uh, counterterrorism analyst for the Department of Defense overseas and a current writer and producer in Hollywood. Wow. So everybody listening, I have two Clementi brothers in the studio. Are you lucky? I don't know. No, I'm not sure on. that's the word I would pick. Well, we could always find a third. <laughs> oh, there are a lot of you. There are a lot of Clementis. Yes, there are. All right. So today we're going to talk to you, Tim, about one of your best cases or worst cases. And you used to tell us to start off, where in your career were you when this case came in? I was a police officer with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Because so, the last time he told us about a case when he was in St. Louis, there were a lot of bullets involved. I know. So it, was it at the beginning, the middle, of the end of your time there? It was, uh, I was only there for about four years, so it was like three quarters of the way through that. So okay. the third year. I, I feel like, though, in four years, Tim actually, you know, spent the time as a police officer more like 20. Yeah, I guess. Well, that was the benefit of working in the highest crime neighborhood in the highest crime city in the world. Which, by the way, he recommended I buy a house in, which I did. (laughs) I wonder why that is, And he was living there, too. Maybe it's because you threw something at him and broke his tooth so long ago. I don't know. That was a long time He's been trying to get back at you for that since you were five. It took the world to break my tooth. (laughs) So if you're three quarters of the way through your career, what were you doing on the day that this case came in? At the time it came in, um, I was just, uh, it was a regular routine patrol day driving around in a police car with, uh, I had a young rookie cop in the car with me. So he was being trained by me. I was his training officer. We rode together on and off for uh, over a year. We, this is probably 
uh, maybe a couple of months in. So he's still pretty green when this happens. His name was Mike. Okay. And is it normal for you to train? Was that your first rookie officer? I think, you know, there's uh, what what's the show on right now called The Rookie, uh, where Nathan Fillion plays a 40-year-old rookie in the LAPD. <laughs> and uh, one of the greatest things about it is we're following him and two of his fellow rookies as they started LAPD with each of their training officers. And they're all very different personalities and they all experience a lot of different things. It's a great show. I'm a big Nathan Fillion fan. Was this your first time as a training officer? It was the first time where I did it completely through. You know, older guys had to fill in every once in a while. And a year and a half, two years on the street, you're an older guy. We had a high turnover uh, because it was such a high crime city. It was a really tough job for the department to keep cops on that department. We were the uh, most highly trained and lowest paid in Missouri. So there's different classifications of police academies. So we were the top classification. So if you went through the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Academy, you can get on any police department in the state of Missouri. So they would so they would start in St. Louis, get a year or two of experience, and then go and to a cushier job that paid more. Paid more, nicer schools, better homes, safer communities. So um, you could have done that too, and yet you did not. Tim, I don't mean to be insulting. Well, actually, I do. Is there something wrong with you? No. Why would anybody want to be a cop and then go and be a school crossing guard? <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, I, I, we definitely know a lot of people like that. But at this point, I'm questioning your sanity after the last case with the bullets flying. I'm, I don't know why you didn't leave at that point. So you've got this rookie, Mike, in the car. You've been with him for a couple of months. Is this like day, night? What time did this happen? This is the evening shift. So Mike and I worked on the overlay shift, it was called, in St. Louis. Uh, there's a normal uh, 73, 3 to 11, 11 to 7 rotation of most officers in the police department. And then in the higher crime areas, there's what's called an overlay shift, where that's a 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. shift, and then you rotate 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. So every three weeks, you do one of those two shifts. There was nobody that replaced the 2 a.m. Uh, end of shift, because if there was still a lot of crime going on, we just stayed and we got overtime. So it was like the, the high-energy uh, platoons were the overlay shifts, and we worked the busiest times of the day, 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. Well, and I just want to say here that it's, I think it's just incredible when you think about, you know, when most of us are sleeping, safe and snug, you know, in our beds, you've got police officers out there policing at all hours of the day or night, and I just want to say thank you for what you did when you did that. Yeah, it was fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, what did you first find out? Well, we were we were on the, the evening shift, the, the 6 p.m. to 2 a.m., and, uh, the first thing, one of the first calls we got was a possible attempted robbery. And I looked at Mike. Mike didn't really see anything weird about that. And I said to the dispatcher, can you give me a call again? She said, yeah, possible attempted robbery at the International Market on Grand Avenue. And I, and I said, okay, we're en route. What and time I, is that? I don't know. It's probably 8 or 9 o'clock at the latest in the evening. I don't even know if it's that late. Maybe 8 o'clock. So is the place still open at yeah, this point? Yeah, the place is still open. Okay. So we get over there, and um, the owner's name was Muhammad. He was from Egypt. His wife, uh, I think it was Nadja, uh, was behind the counter at the front of the store, and they had a little boy about five years old. And they were, especially the mother and the kid, were really shaken. And the father, who I knew pretty well, been to his place too many times. He used to get robbed all the time because he was an Egyptian immigrant, and uh, they figured he'd be easy prey. That's terrible. So uh, you might remember the, the international market. It was right on Grand Avenue, about a half a block from um, Hartford mm. Street. 
All right, so you you respond to this location. You'd been there before. This guy had been robbed a number of times, but now you have a possible attempted robbery. Yeah. Wait, so wait, so the Grand Market is just like a little store. It's a small little. I thought maybe market. you were talking about one of those, you know, big like farmers market kind of a big. No, no, you know, no. It's it's just a small markets. store. He's from Egypt, so he had specialty foreign foods for for Middle Eastern people, for Hispanic people. There was just like it was just a small market, and it was like a convenience store too. So we had. Hit coolers with with beer and soda in the back, and then all the chips and all that stuff, and then some specialty foods. So you have husband, wife, and five year old. Yeah, and you so guys roll up. We come up, we walk in. Muhammad, what's going on? And he said, you know, Officer Tim, I'm not even sure it was real. I don't know what what it was. And I said, well, what do you mean? What happened? And he he had some surveillance cameras in the store, so he took me in the back and showed me on the camera or on the monitor what had happened. Mm-hmm. And four kids had come into the store. They look pretty young. One's in a green and white striped shirt. Two are in like dark t-shirts and one's in a sweatshirt that was, he was kind of an overweight kid. They looked like they were mid-teens. And they came in the store and Muhammad was in the back of the store stocking the coolers. So he's putting beer and soda in the coolers and he's not paying attention. He's making a lot of noise doing this. And then he hears his wife scream, Muhammad, they have a gun. She yells it in Arabic to him. And Muhammad turns around and looks, and the kid in the green and white shirt is standing near the door. He's holding a gun, and he's pointing at Muhammad's wife and the kid. That must be such a terrifying experience to have a gun pointed at you. Especially by someone who's in his mid-teens, because kids that young do not have a real appreciation for life and death. And they are the most dangerous people on the planet when they have guns. And they also have poor impulse control. Yeah. Well... What happened was Muhammad said he immediately looked, saw what was going on. One of the kids had grabbed a six-pack of beer out of a cooler and was walking towards the front door. Other kids were grabbing chips, so the one with the gun was standing closest to the door, and the three that were grabbing stuff were going towards the door. Muhammad, fearing that his wife or son would get shot by the kid with the gun, screamed, and he said, I didn't know what to do, officer. I had no idea what to do, so I pretended I had a gun. He said, I reached behind my back, and I yelled, I will shoot you. I will kill you. I will shoot you. And I was running towards him. And uh, I said, well, what did they do? And, and he said, the kid with the six-pack turned and saw me. He dropped it, and that's this crashed puddle of glass and beer right here. And then Mike looks over, and there's another puddle, and he goes, what's this puddle? And Muhammad said, well, when I screamed, I will kill you, the kid with the gun peed his pants right there. Well, he's lucky he didn't shoot him. And mm-hmm. and his he yelled for his wife to get down. She ducked behind the cash register counter, huddling over the little boy. And Muhammad just ran towards him. He said, I didn't know what I was going to do when I got to them, but I was reaching behind my back saying, I will shoot you, I will kill you. And by the time I got to the door, the other three grabbed the kid with the gun and they ran away. And I said, so that was it? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, we got a good description from the video. Do you want us to prosecute him? He said, well, I think they only stole one bag of chips. I think that's all they got other yeah. than breaking the beer bottles. Well, and they had and a I gun said, though. And he, well, this is what he said was, that's why he said a possible attempted robbery. He said, I think maybe it was a toy. And that's why he was so scared because oh. I, I was only pretending I didn't have a gun and he urinated himself while he supposedly had a gun. So I think it was a toy. Right. Well, except that whether it was a toy or not, it's still an attempted robbery and brandishing what appears to be a gun. Flourishing was the crime in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so, but Muhammad wasn't sure. And he said, I don't want to waste your time. I just wanted to let you know what happened. My wife was really upset, but we're fine. You know, I said, all right, well, if you want us to go look for him, we'll, we'll do a report. He said, 
I don't think it was a real robbery attempt. I think they were just kids doing a prank and they got scared. That's so very generous of well, him. He was a great guy. They smashed a, a sick pack of beer, which is per se stealing that beer. They yeah. did it. Yeah, but he was saying that it's it's such a minor thing what they got away with, what they did. He thought they came in trying to do a joke and then it got out of hand and he scared them and he felt bad that he scared them. But, what? But what about the fact that they could walk out and do it anywhere else? Well, he didn't think that was going to happen. Well, and plus he can't possibly anyway. know if that gun was actually a yeah. toy. So we weren't trying to look at the video. The video is not clear enough for us to see if it looks if it's a real gun or a toy or not. We can't tell. Calls are stacking up on the radio. So Muhammad's like, I'm sorry to bother you. Don't worry about it. So we said, okay. So next thing we call back into service. It's a disturbance call is what it gets coded as an 84. It's just a disturbance, not a crime. So we're not going to do a report. We get back in our car, get the next call. Next call is uh, there's a bunch of Crips hanging out on a corner. Uh, Crips are a national gang, right? And they are identified by the color blue. Yep. So they'll have like a blue handkerchief or a blue sweater or shirt or jacket or bandana. Usually white t-shirts with, with a blue bandana somewhere in a pocket on their, on their head or whatever. And blue jeans. A group of charmers, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were out on a, on a street corner and, uh, we pulled up. I drove up with them on my side of the car. I was driving, turned on the spotlight on the, on the A pillar of my car. And it shines right in the faces of a bunch of guys there. And uh, and I rolled out my side and I said, all right, everybody up against the wall. Call had been for suspicious activity and possible shots fired. People heard bangs. They thought these kids were on the corner and fired a gun. I get tell them up against the wall. And then one of them starts to get brave and mouth off to me. He, he's not going to shoot all of us. He can't. It's just one one bitch alone, something like that. He calls me. And, and then the other guy say, yeah, he can't shoot all of us. And then just then... I hear <gasps> over the roof of the car, and it's Mike, who's six foot four. He's leaning over the roof of the car, and he says, "No, but I can." And I was like, <laughs> I, I like Mike. Mike. I was like, "That's a good call right there." So they hear the shotgun. They can't see him because of the spotlight, but they know there's a shotgun on. Him, and boom, they're gone. They all run, scatter, and a couple of them drop guns as they were running. They were gone. So we had no arrest there. We 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 weren't about to pursue for for nothing. There was really no case there. You know that other sh- calls are stacking up. The shotgun. It's when I first started as an assistant DA in Columbus, Georgia. Did you use a shotgun in court, Francie? I really need to know. <laughs> no, oh, that's a great thing, but I wish I had. No, um, when I first started as assistant DA, I started to think. You know, I was living by myself, probably the first time in my life, and I thought about home defense. And so I was talking to. Uh, the old ADAs, the old Southern boys who were in the office when I got there. And I said, you know, what kind of gun should I buy? And of course I'm thinking dirty Harry. So I want some sort of a handgun, you know, definitely. And they said, you should definitely get a shotgun. And I said, Oh really? Why? It's not like I can carry that in my purse. And they said, well, for home defense, there is nothing like the sound of racking a shotgun. Everybody knows what it sounds like. And everybody knows you're not going to miss no matter how bad you are at aiming you get a shotgun, you rack it, and whoever's in your house is going to be out of your house very quickly. Yeah, there's definitely some truth to that. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree. By the way, I did end up getting a handgun. Mm. So now I'm glad we know that. Everyone yeah. should know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, all right. So these guys take off. You collect the guns. Yeah, so we get tied evidence. up for probably 20 minutes or so, maybe a little bit longer, dealing with this call. And then we come back in service. And when we come back in service... We're driving right in that same area where we had our first call. We were within a couple blocks of there. 
and we get a call for a car accident, accident with injuries. And that's a rare thing in our district. There's not a lot of car accidents. So I get the call. It's an RB. We're only a block and a half away. So we roll around the corner and we come up on a car and it's diagonally almost 90 degrees opposed to the street. And it's crashed into the steps from, if you can picture a house sitting back 20 feet from the road with a front porch, it's got a sidewalk and then it's got steps coming down to the other sidewalk, the, the street sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And this car has crashed right into those steps and it's kind of up at a little bit of an angle. So it's kitty corner a little bit and it's just crashed in there. And we pull up right away. There's steam coming out of the hood because it's crashed in and the radiator's dented in or, or destroyed. And I, uh, so I get out, I come right to the driver's side window. Mike walks around to the passenger side and there's two people in the car. The driver is slumped over in the passenger seat and the passenger is a young girl, about 12 years old. And she's just staring straight ahead. And Mike goes to grab, open the passenger door. And I said, don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. And he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? We got to get him out. And I said, no, don't touch anything. And I said, get homicide on the horn right now. And he said, homicide for what? I said, this isn't a car accident. And I said, just get on the radio and do it. So he gets on the radio and explains, uh, we need homicide here. Uh, it's not a car accident. And the dispatcher's confused. No, I got a call for a car accident. Yeah, we're there. And I get on the radio. I said, dispatcher, just get homicide here. And I also need Officer Lisa. I don't want to say her last name, but I need Lisa here. And the dispatcher said, for what? I said, I just need Lisa here. Get her here. And my sergeant immediately, a sergeant, a good sergeant, and I had a great one, Sergeant Ralph Harper. Um, he, he was on top of everything his platoon did. He showed up on every call he could. He was always on the radio, making sure he was aware of anything that was happening. And he gets on, and we were call, car 2338. The two stands for the second shift. So night shift is, was a two for us. Three is the third district, and then 38. So our precinct is 38. So in the third district, 38 precinct, and we're on the second shift. So Sergeant Ralph Harbour gets on the radio, says, 2338, what did this turn into? And I said, Sarge, you might want to roll by. And he said, I'm two seconds away. So he pulls up a minute later. By then, I said, Mike, get the yellow tape out, tape all the way across the street to the bank. And he said, why? And I said, because I think this was a robbery at the bank ATM. What? He said, what? He said, I'm as did, confused as the yeah, dispatcher. Well, yeah, he said, how did how, the how direction did you of travel? Where the car, the car's like this. And if you back the car up, you would see there's an ATM right there. So I said, I think they came from the ATM. Plus, the driver is slumped in the passenger seat and his brain matter and blood is all over the passenger oh, and dear all over God. the dashboard. Oh, that's horrific for that poor and, little girl. And so this 12-year-old girl is in an emotional coma. She's staring straight ahead. She is not responsive in any way us. Ladies, are y'all like me and the first thing you do when you get home is rip off your bra because it's so uncomfortable? Then you haven't tried Third Love. Using millions of real women's measurements, Third Love designs its bras with breast size and shape in mind for an impeccable fit and an incredible feel that you're happy to wear all day, like I am. You can skip the trip to the store, find your fit in 60 seconds using Third Love's online fit finder, then you can order, try them on at home, and you don't have to worry about those awkward, bad lighting fitting room experiences. 
Third Love offers double the number of sizes that most other brands offer. They have cup sizes from A through H and bands up to 48. 50% of women fall in between standard cup sizes. Did you even know that was a thing? And so Third Love invented half cup sizing. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Just go to thirdlove.com slash best case now to find your perfect fitting bra and to get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash best case for 15% off today. I think we can all agree that finding the right people, hiring can be pretty time consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ziprecruiter.com slash best case. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and then actively invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a 1,000 reviews, and it's how we found our own engineer and editor. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. If you love best case, worst case, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So my sergeant pulls up 30 seconds later. He says, what do you got? And I said, I think it's a shooting, probably from the ATM, most likely a robbery. So we're going to go secure the ATMs and get the cameras, get whatever we can. He said, all right, let's get the manager in here from the bank. You know, their bank's already been closed for a few hours. And uh, I knew the manager. I knew everybody in that neighborhood. That was the bank I banked at. And it's in my beat. So I said, all right, I'll get, I think his name was Phil. I'll get him in here. We'll take care of that. Uh, He said, all right, homicide's on the way. They'll be here any minute. Okay. And then he said, what do you need Lisa for? And I said, well, if you can see that the passenger is a 12-year-old girl, approximately. She's sitting there. She's in an emotional coma. Her father obviously just got shot and killed in front of her. His blood matter and his brain is sitting in her lap. And I believe it's probably most likely a guy that shot her father. So I think a woman should approach her, not a guy. So I don't want to get close to her. We're going to need to talk to her. We need information from her. But she needs to be consoled more than anything else right now. So well, that was nice. That was very that, yeah. that was very sensitive, Tim. And you, you just uh, you just so everyone knows, you have a pack of daughters. Yeah. So I have six daughters, and I know that girls are close to their mothers ordinarily until they get to their teenage years. Sometimes <laughs> they can get pretty true. Very but, true. Um, and so Lisa, I knew had a, a young child, and so she was a mother. She was the only one on my platoon I knew about was female that was a mother. She was the only uh, female I think working that shift at that time on our platoon. So she showed up and said, what do you need? And I explained to her. So she said, all right, I'll, I'll try and help her. And by this time, an ambulance is on scene. Homicide arrives there. So Lisa goes over with the ambulance crew and she opens the door. The ambulance crew is taking the father off the girl's lap. And Lisa's trying to get the girl out. The girl was absolutely, completely unresponsive in every way. Wow. And finally, Lisa said, we need to get you out of the car. Are you hurt in any way? She wouldn't answer. The, the ambulance crew was looking through the window at the girl, didn't see any signs of her own blood. They figured she was okay. 
So Lisa goes to help the girl out. And as soon as she lifts her out of the car, the girl just collapses on Lisa. Mm. So all the blood and everything all over her gets all over Lisa. And Lisa's just mm. holding the girl up. They walked her over to the ambulance, sat her down on the, on the tailgate of the ambulance so that the ambulance crew could treat her and keep her away from seeing the father taken out the other side of the car. You know, Tim, I can't help but thinking with my prosecutor's brain about evidence here and how, and we've also interviewed Maureen O'Connell on this podcast several times who did ERT. So I can't help thinking that there's almost a conflict right there at the scene. You know, you've got caring for that child, which obviously has to be priority number one, or at least emotionally and kind of morally, it needs to be priority number one, but evidentiary wise. And for a prospective prosecution, you have to be thinking about evidence. And so moving the child could change the way the evidence is collected. It could, it could take away evidence that shows things like angles and where the bullets came from or, or how close the person was when they fired into the car. So do you think about that or is your instinct just let's fix the child and figure everything else out? Well, you're, you're, there's, there's a hierarchy of priority on any crime scene. And the first thing is save lives and take care of the living and then take care of the dead. Evidence is actually the last thing you worry about. It's something that's really important because you have to prosecute somebody eventually, hopefully for the crime, but you can't think about that. So like on 9-11, when you're running into the World Trade Center or the Pentagon, you're trying to get the living out of there, get the wounded, get the living. Then you want to get the dead out of there if you can, because those are still human beings. And then you worry about, okay, how do we process the evidence? So the same thing in this case. Mm -hmm. That's why I told Mike not to touch anything. I didn't want to contaminate the door handles just in case. I didn't want our fingerprints anywhere on there, even though we can do elimination prints later on. You don't want to smudge the, the one actual legitimate print of the bad guy if it's on that car. You know, one thing that people don't realize is that prints are not burned into the metal of the car. You know, they're, they're light uh, prints of oil and dirt and so forth that have ridge patterns that match the fingerprints that put them there, and they can be wiped off simply. Yeah. And so you do have to be very careful about that. And when we do open car doors, we try to reach to an area that doesn't look like that's where you would normally grab and things like that to try to miss where the prints are. But in an emergency situation, if somebody's life is at risk, you know, you have to forego that and just go for saving their lives. Well, you can't leave a 12-year-old girl in a car with her dead father. You know? Right. And so you get her out. They're dealing with her. What do you do so, next? So the homicide detective arrives on scene. I had called the manager of the bank who lived close by, so he was there within minutes. Mike and I and the homicide detective walked over to the bank, met the manager by the front door. He let us in. And we went into the bank, and we explained uh, we needed to see the ATM video cameras. This is in 1993, 1994, and uh, it's 94. And, and there were actually video cameras. Yeah, these were, <laughs> these were old school cameras. This was not high-tech digital equipment, very low-tech. So we came in, explained what happened. The manager was very distraught to hear about that. So we said, look, we need, to, we need to look at the camera. This thing happened eight minutes ago or whatever when the call came out. So we knew the approximate time. We went to the tape for that uh, ATM. Actually, there was only one ATM at that time. So went to the tape for the ATM. We played it back to that point in time, and we saw... The victim drive up to the ATM. It was a 30-year-old black male named Frank. He was a working guy. He was wearing a union wind, windbreaker. One of the few intact families that just an admirable guy and 
So that in, on the video, we can see the daughter is holding a Blockbuster videotape in her hand, a VHS tape. So they had just come from Blockbuster. They were on their way to go to get some Chinese food. It was a family tradition. Every couple of weeks on his paydays, uh, he would bring home a movie and some Chinese food. He had three kids and a wife, and they would all have a family movie night eating Chinese food. And so when he drove up to the ATM, he put his card in, put his code in, and tried to get $20. And so sorry, Sam, sorry to interrupt. This was a drive-through ATM versus a walk-up? It's a drive-up ATM, mm -hmm. yes. So he drove, he drove up to the ATM, put his card in, put the code in, and tried to get $20 out. And on his first attempt, it got rejected. We're seeing what he's doing on the video at the same time on another screen. We're seeing his transaction history at the same time. So he tries to get $20 out. $20 doesn't come out. It gets rejected. And back then, the ATMs were not these digital, digital wonders that give you your balance immediately and everything else. It just says rejected. You know, you're... you're your, uh, I think it's a transaction declined. Yes. Um, and so that's all That's all he knows. He doesn't know why. So he goes to try again, puts his card in again. And as he puts his card in a second time, a gun comes into view in the camera. And it's pointed right at his head. So that gun is in the back window of his car is open and the front window is open because it's a warm night. The gun comes in the back window and is right at the back of his head. Mm. And so... He, you see him look up, and he's totally startled, and we, there's no dialogue, you know, there's no audio on the recording, and so he puts the card in, hits the thing again, tries to get 20. Transaction declined. Tries again and again and again. It comes oh, to his head this whole God. time. My God. On the 13th attempt, he goes for a $10 transaction, puts the code in again, $10 comes out of the ATM. Immediately, a hand reaches, grabs that $10, and then... Just then, he's looking up at the gunman, and his attention all of a sudden turns to his right. And we see two dark-shirted guys on the passenger side of the car attempting to open the passenger <gasps> door. Where his daughter was. And he sees they're trying to grab his daughter, so he just steps on the gas. And bang, the gun goes off like that. Shot him in the back of the head. Car comes out of frame, and we know the rest, that he crashes into the steps across oh the street. Gotcha. So we know no. Yeah, it's that's a terrible robbery at the ATM and an attempted kidnapping probably. That's horrific. But Tim, it sounds to me like you don't have faces on that video of these bad guys. No, we don't have any faces on the video. All we have on the video at this point is you can see the gun. We can see the two guys in dark t-shirts on the far side of the gun, all black males. We see the hand of the, the black male that's holding the gun. That's all we know. So we know there's at least three of them. Can't tell age, anything. There's nothing we can tell from this. It's a revolver. So we, when we're at the crime scene, we don't find a shell casing because the, the shell casing remains in the cylinder of the revolver. It's not ejected like a semi-automatic handgun would eject around. So all we know is what we now have on, on this video. So I tell the bank manager, okay, go back about 10 or 15 minutes and let's see who was at the ATM before. Maybe we'll have a witness to what happened here. Well, and... At this point, it's how long since the murder, uh, approximately? We're, we're talking probably 15 to 20 minutes now since the murder. And so you're on, it's a manhunt. This is a manhunt because you've got killers on the loose and you Absolutely. know it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't know if there are other victims or possible other victims coming up. So right away, we, we got to go back in time. Let's see what, let's see what happened before this. So he goes back about 15, 20 minutes and, um, 
there's a little dead spot on the video. There's nobody at the ATM, nobody at the ATM. All of a sudden, a blue Suburban pulls up to the ATM. And right away, my partner, Mike, turns and looks at me, a little bit exasperated, and I, my eyes are wide open. It's my wife at the ATM. What? Yeah. And my kids, I have four kids at the time, are climbing over the back seat onto the front seat, and, and, and there they are at the ATM, and my wife's getting cash out of the ATM. And I right away grabbed the phone. I, I feel like I'm stunned and I'm in an alternate universe. Seriously, Seriously you're alive. Totally yes. yeah. I told you, this is the bank I banked at. I knew the manager. This was the closest bank to our house. We only lived about four or five blocks away from here. And so I'm dialing the phone. I'm trying to call my wife. We don't have cell phones at the time. So I'm calling my home phone. It's ringing, it's ringing, it's ringing, it's ringing. Uh, the videos just paused there with my wife on the screen. And I'm trying to call my wife. I can't reach her. And I'm, I'm thinking the worst. Everybody's thinking the worst. The, the manager's sitting there saying, what's going on? He doesn't realize it's my wife on the screen. And Mike says, that's Tim's wife. And he's, oh, my gosh. So I'm trying to call her. Just then, the dispatcher gets on the radio and calls the homicide detective and says, hey, calls out his call sign. Call your wife immediately. I'm like, tell her it's my wife. Not, and then I'm like, how does the dispatcher know? We're trying to figure out. He looks at me. and I'm looking at the homicide detective. What the heck's going on? And he goes, dispatcher, I'm kind of busy here. And she says, call your wife immediately. He picks up another phone. So he dials. It's actually, they're, they're uh, separated. So he calls his wife and he's like, all right, what the heck's going on? And she's screaming into the phone. And I can hear her while mine's just ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing at home. And I kept getting the answer machine and calling back again. I'm getting no answer. His wife says, you need to get up to this apartment right now and deal with your daughter. And he says, I can't. I'm on a homicide right now. And I, this is my fourth homicide tonight. I'm a little busy. I, you, you're going to have to deal with it. And she said, no, I'm not going to deal with it. She was just up in here with her boyfriend. And he shot a gun off in my living room. And he said, what? Yeah, her boyfriend was just up here playing around with a gun. He shot it into the ceiling of our living room. I, I chased them out of here with a broom. He said, what do you mean them? Figuring he, she chased the daughter out too. And she said, no, there was four of them. It was him and three of his friends. And so I said, him and three friends, who are they? And I said, go. So he races back to his house, bullet in the ceiling, talks to the daughter, gets a description of the guys. He comes back to the homicide scene. The house is two blocks away from the crime scene. He comes back. I meet him on the crime scene. Now, my wife is still in limbo. I don't know where she is. His wife has just chased a gunman out of their living room, 15-year-old, 16-year-old boys that were in there. Hmm. He comes back on the scene and he says, I took care of that problem. Well, I'll, I'm going to go find the kid later on and I'll square that away. You know, Nobody was hurt. My wife was just upset. And I said, well, it's kind of understandable. And then Lisa comes walking over to us and he said to Lisa, did we get a description from the girl? Was there any more that she could give us? And Lisa said, not much, but I got a little bit. I got something on the shooter. And she said, okay, do you want me to put it out? And I said, well, why don't you let Mike put it out? He needs the radio time. So Mike grabs her notepad, start, gets on the radio, says, dispatcher, I want to put it out a description of the shooters. And he goes, the shooter has a green and white. He looks at me and I said, what's wrong? And he said, green and white striped t-shirt, oh, no. two black males. And I said, Muhammad? And, wow. and uh, the homicide detective goes, who the hell's Muhammad? He goes, that's my daughter's boyfriend. That's Pookie. I said, what? He goes, those are the kids that were in my daughter's house. I said, well, those are the kids that tried to rob the, the grocery store. 
And he said, what, do you, what grocery store? And I said, it was coded. It wasn't a robbery. They thought it was, the owner thought it was a toy gun. He didn't want to do a report. He said, wait, wait, what are you talking about? Because the homicide detective doesn't know about our prior call. Right. I don't know what happened at his house with his wife and the, the kids. And we put it all together. It's all the same kids. They attempted to rob Muhammad. They left Muhammad's store. They came around the corner, ended up behind by the ATM, saw the guy pull up with the, at the ATM. So while they were at the store trying to rob the Egyptian guy, your wife was at the ATM that they would then go to. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. And then we, we go, we play a little bit more on the tape and my wife drives away. So I assume she survived the ATM encounter. At least I still don't know where she is. The next person, just a minute or two after my wife, a guy in a brand spanking new, really nice Ford pickup truck pulls up to the ATM. And he's on camera, puts his card in, and he's withdrawing $400 from his account. There are $13,000 and change in his account. While he's getting his money out of the ATM, as he's waiting for it to come out, something catches his eye in his left side view mirror. He's looking at the ATM screen. Something catches his eye, left side view mirror. He looks at that, looks startled, looks to the right side view mirror, looks back to the left side view mirror. And something has his attention. All of a sudden, he lays down in the seat, disappears out of frame for a second, comes back up. He's only using his left hand to get the money and his card out of the ATM. He's no longer using his right hand. He's looking around frantically. He grabs the money, grabs the card, looks, and then drives off quickly. I'm like, he's got a gun. He got a gun out of the glove compartment. That's why he disappeared out of frame. He's holding the gun in his right hand. He's afraid he's about to be robbed. He saw the shooters. So I call this guy. I have his whole account of information, everything. He lives in St. Louis County. He doesn't live in the city. So he's about 10 or 15 minutes away. I call him and say, Officer Tim Clemente with the St. Louis Police Department, there was a problem with your transaction at the bank. Um, there's a, an issue with your account. You need to get back here right away to get this straightened out. Uh, I'm at the bank. I'm with the manager right now. There's been several issues with the ATM. Somebody may have gotten into your account. So he said, okay, uh, you know, I have to come now. Can I come tomorrow? You have to come right now. So he drives back to the bank. When he gets there, I pull him aside, sit him down in a room alone. And I said, look, I know you had a gun. I don't care. Nobody else needs to know you had a gun. Okay. That's not what this is about. Well, no, who, who said I had a gun? I said, it didn't happen. Don't worry about it. I don't care about that. I'm not here to go after you. I'm here to go after the guys. And he said, I don't want to even talk about this. And I said, the guy that was at the ATM right after you was murdered by somebody that I think you saw. He said, what? And I said, yeah. I think there was three or four kids by the ATM, and they robbed the next customer, shot him in the head, and he died in his 12-year-old daughter's lap. I said, I need to know what you saw. And he said, all I can tell you is I was sitting there, and I saw movement right behind my bumper, and I saw a green and white striped shirt. It looked like a black kid. I couldn't see their faces. And then he said, I looked to the right and I saw, I don't know if it was two or three or four more kids all wearing dark. It was really hard to see him on that side. And it looked like they were crawling up to me. So I, I got my gun. I held it in my lap. He said, I'll tell you, officer, if they had just even approached me, I probably would have shot them all. He said, I was terrified. And I said, well, I could see that you were terrified on the video. But you predators, survived. Jim. They're crawling along. They're preying on people. I mean, these are predators. Yeah. Well, look, obviously. So... Man, so you you got all this stuff going on all at the same time. And, we, and luckily, I got a great sergeant. He's like, what do you need? What do you need? And so I turned to the homicide detective and I said, who's your daughter's boyfriend? 
and it was like Pookie or some nickname like that. I said, she know where he lives? Yeah, he's a few blocks away in Juniata. She thinks he stays there. I said, what are we waiting for? So Sergeant Harper said, bring in the cavalry, whoever's available. And we raced down, got to this house. He's not there. Mother or aunt or somebody was there. She said he went over to somebody else's house. So we all race over there. 15 cop cars, lights and sirens, shotguns, everybody. We have a murderer that's on the loose right now. We're finding these kids. So we get to the second place. We come rushing in, kick in the door. They're in there. The four kids all just sitting there joking, laughing. They got a bag of onion rinds or something, onion rings or something that they stole from Muhammad. And they have $10 that they went and spent and they bought a bunch of sodas or something. The $10, they murdered the guy, and they're all sitting there. And in come 20 cops with shotguns in their faces. Where's the gun? And all the kids are like, Pookie got the gun. Pookie. And they, the other three pointed to him, and he's sitting on the gun. It's underneath him. Is so, he still wearing a green and white striped shirt? Still wearing the green and white striped shirt. Blood on his arm oh, and on geez. the shirt. He's just sitting guy. around with blood on, they're just eating. eating. onion rings. And they're sitting there and they're joking until, of course, the shotgun muzzles are in their faces. And we get them all and I get them up. We're cuffing them all. And I said, three of you guys are going to prison for the rest of your life. One of you is getting the death penalty. Which one? And they all pointed, hidden the green and white striped shirt. He shot him. We didn't do it. Right? We didn't do anything. He shot him. And I said, you got his money. He only had $19 in his bank account because his check hadn't cleared. Couldn't even get $20 out. You took the guy's almost last $10. Why did you shoot him? You didn't have to shoot him. You got his money. And he said, because he wouldn't let us take the bitch. And I said, that was his 12-year-old daughter. He said, yeah, but she was fine. Dear God. And oh, my God. That was why it was my worst case ever. Because it was not only that an innocent guy is killed, girl is traumatized, other victims, but that there was they didn't care at all there was no human empathy there was no humanity oh god in that kid. Oh, that kid needs to go away forever did did you pull the slug out of the ceiling yep matched the... it homicide detective got had the evidence response team run to his house pull that bullet out they got the bullet out of the victim's head and they got the gun with the other rounds in it and the shell casings that matched the two bullets that were fired so well, i assume they were all prosecuted yeah they were all adjudicated as adults and charged as adults. And it was a homicide first degree because basically an attempted kidnapping and a robbery. So you have a felony murder there. Not a lot of easy ways to get out of that one. No defense attorney is going to get that kid out of that. And did the store owner also testify and use the video from that yep. as a precursor crime? Yep. What a horrible, just what a horrible case, Tim. And I feel so terribly for that little 12 year old girl who grew up probably obviously had a hard time in life for a variety of reasons, missing her dad, and her but siblings. just the trauma of seeing that happen right next to her. I, I can't imagine it was easy if she ever did get over it. Yeah. And, and the shooter, I think was the 15 year old and the other kids were two of them, I think were 16, one was 17. And, you know, the really sad thing is that was 1994 in October, 2018, I was back in St. Louis for the unfortunate burial of Sergeant Ralph Harper, a great sergeant I worked for when I was a cop back there. He sergeant was killed Harper, in the line of duty? No, he was killed. He retired after 33 years on the job from the 
most uh, legacy family in the St. Louis Police Department. His three brothers were cops and his father was a cop. So the five Harpers were cops. A total of 200 years of service on the St. Louis Police Department and his family alone. Wow. So Ralph retires after 33 years. He's 66 years old with his wife, married for 40 some years. They're driving in this same neighborhood over by Tower Grove Park, mm. going to babysit their grandniece and grandnephew. And they pulled up outside the house. Ralph's wife got out, walked up into the house. And then Ralph saw a parking space about three or four cars down and said, honey, I'm just going to park the car. I'll be right in with the groceries. So he pulls up into the parking space, parallel parks in there, gets out with two bags of groceries. Car pulls up, screeches to a stop right beside him. Young black male gets out with a gun in his hand, shoots Ralph Harper right in the chest. Ralph drops onto the street. Groceries fall all over the place. He pulls his gun and he gets off five rounds. Car takes off. Kid jumps in it. They're gone. Ralph calls 911, explains who he is, where he is. I'm wounded. Uh, it was a robbery attempt, I think. Um, I think I wounded the shooter. They took off in this direction, gave a physical description, clothing description, car description, everything, direction of travel. Immediately, an officer in need of aid call comes out, which is the cavalry. Everyone comes. They all get there. And this is 7.30 in the morning on like a Wednesday, and uh, which is really unusual time for a crime like this to happen. But uh, it's because of the drug problem now keeping timelines out of whack. So kids that are using, you know, they're using opiates and everything else. They're not sleeping normal hours. So the crime times have spread out all over the 24-hour clock now. Um, so Ralph is transported by police officers to the hospital with an escort of about 50 police cars rushing him to the hospital. They take him to the, the closest trauma center. They're bringing him into the emergency room. In the emergency room is the kid with a gunshot wound in his hand in the exact clothing that Ralph had just described. So they immediately take him down. And then outside in the parking lot is the car that Ralph described. And so that car takes off when all the cops roll up. Now there's a pursuit. They chase this car. It crashes several blocks away into in a building. And uh, that kid's arrested. He's 16 years old. The shooter, I think, is 16 years old. Um, actually, maybe one of them might have been 15. So it's basically the same circumstance from 24 years prior when, you know, a, a good guy is killed for absolutely no reason at all by a kid with no conscience and no empathy and no human emotion in any way. 15, 16 years old, just kill a guy because you want to take what he has. Who knows if they were after his car, the groceries, his wallet, whatever, but a senseless murder. All right. Well, just tell me what happened when you finally got in touch with your wife on that fateful day, 24 years earlier. Uh, So when I finally, I kept calling all night while we were running around. I finally get a hold of my wife, Karen. And one of the kids had croup, was sick. And so she wanted to go to the store and get some, some Vicks Vapo rug, the vaporizer and get some medicine for her. So she had to go to the ATM, get some cash, and then she drove down. And the first place she went to didn't have any. So she was driving from grocery store to grocery store, looking for a 24-hour pharmacy to try and get these things with a sick kid and three other kids in the car. So she's just having a typical miserable night. And when I called, I'm screaming at her, what the hell are you doing going to the ATM at you know whatever time of the night it was? And she was like, I had to, and she didn't know what was going on. And then I explained 10 minutes after you were there, there was a guy shot and killed. All right. Well, thank Go you forward. so much for, for that story I feel and like for I've your run service. A race. And 
it's wow. I mean, that's insane what it happened insane. that night. And, you know, thank God that St. Louis had and has amazing police officers and, and every major city across this country does that risk their lives. And I'm so sorry for the loss of that citizen and for the loss of your amazing sergeant. It's really, really horrible. Yep. Thank you for telling us that story. And until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. <laughs>